0: I'm Evan DeWald, and I am joined by Tara Lindsley, and we are the voices behind the Unpacked podcast. On the Unpacked podcast, one of the things we love to do is talk about life and storytelling, and sometimes life gets messy and vulnerable and all those things. So, we have conversations conversations with counselors, with psychologists, with industry leaders, storytellers, and just regular humans that are making a difference in the world.
1: Yeah, and we're just hoping to grow and reflect and heal together. So you can find our podcast anywhere you subscribe to your podcasts. New episodes come out every Thursday. Enjoy.
0: Make sure to like and subscribe. See you there. Hey,
1: Tara. Hey.
0: How are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you? I'm okay yeah, it's like weird. we're
0: not in the same room,
1: <laughs> no, again,
0: sometimes it's better to be safe than sorry. I agree, you know, last week, we were together. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? like let's just let's just do a time quick timeline here,
1: okay. We were together and yeah, and
0: you 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 were healthy. not sick.
1: <laughs> and then by Thursday. I was a little sick.
0: Yeah. And now look at what's happened. Now is my turn.
1: (laughs) I see you're publicly shaming me.
0: (laughs) No, I I just think I just think it's funny that we spent all this time making sure that nobody gets you sick. (laughs) And then I'm pretty sure you made me sick. I don't don't know. I don't know. It's a pretty long time. I might be a stretch to say that you made me sick, but you were for sure sick before me. So,
1: Yeah. So yeah, and we are really cautious when it comes to me. So I'm not there.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're not there. Uh, and we got it, we got a thing coming up. So we kind of want to get healthy and stay healthy if we can.
1: Yeah, like how many days? Six days. Uh,
0: six days. And we're off to Haiti.
1: Yeah. So like, when people listen, we'll be in Haiti.
0: We will be in Haiti, and uh, I love going to Haiti for so many reasons. Like, not only do I love getting to like get there and see old friends and meet some new friends and check in on all the fun stuff that projects that are kind of going on there. Um it's it's interesting because we have so many things to do when we're there, but it also still feels like a slower pace.
1: I know because Haitian time is different.
0: And maybe it's probably because I'm running always at a hundred miles an hour. So this just <laughs> forced me to slow down a little bit. Yeah. So I, I am kind of looking forward to some of those kind of things and maybe maybe we get a few stories in for the podcast too.
1: We're hoping,
0: I, am hoping. I really am hoping and uh, probably the biggest and most fun part about going to Haiti is seeing Dr. Mono.
1: Yeah, it's the best.
0: He is. This is a solid human.
1: Yeah. You've known him forever. I've known him for a little while.
0: Yeah, I think I met him. My Well, I, I know I met him on my very first trip there, like when he was studying to be a doctor. Wow. Which was like 20, 21 years ago. 2022, yeah, something like that. A lot of years ago. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I'm kind of looking forward to to seeing him and catching up a little bit with him. And he has a family. And so we get to meet his daughter and some of those kind of fun things. This is going to be pretty awesome.
1: I know. We've never met her, right? Like, No.
0: Nope.
1: She's four? She's four. Yeah. So she's the same age as Theo. Um, What was your first impression of him? Do you remember?
0: He was funny. He, he has a great sense of humor. Yeah. He... My first impression with him was, was that he was full of passion for what he was doing and for health care and for those things in Haiti. And like it says something about a person that, that hasn't wavered, still totally passionate about caring for people. And now he's into diabetic care. and some of those kind of things. Yeah, no, he was he was just a diet, kind of a funny, passionate guy. He definitely is paying attention to everything that's happening around him. What do you mean? He's just he's just always paying attention to like how is everybody fitting in? Are are we safe? What's the next thing? What story should I tell that's going to be make the most impact here? Like all of those kind of things is very very good at that. And um, yeah, so I I, I kind of love that about him. He's he's an idea guy. I'll tell you that. Which you know, a dreamer. He's a bit of a dreamer, and you know I'm a bit of a dreamer myself. But it's hard. It's almost hard to keep up with some of his dreams sometimes.
1: I'm not familiar with what that's like, <laughs> <laughs> but I do find working with them very familiar and very easy. Well, there you go. Yeah,
0: it's relatively safe there, and it's definitely time to go and see see the projects and what's going on there. And we're going with a little group of people, which is really fun. And like Otto gets to come, so you know, hopefully that's a good experience for him. So I'm looking forward to it. I really am. It's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, How was your weekend then? If you were sick, you you had a you know spectacular weekend. You, you watching anything?
1: Yeah, really eventful. I watched a lot of shows. Theo loved it because he watched also a lot of shows, the two of us, since both Ryan and I were not feeling great. Um, yeah, I was re-watching Scandal because I really like watching that again. Mm-hmm. And I watched Only Murders in the Building. Oh, I did watch The Grand Tour with Ryan. We were watching the latest episode of that. So it's like a car show, which, yeah, but they do like some adventures. So I'm like, okay to watch it. It's not all the breakdown about the cars that really gets me. They're, they're, funny. they're not
0: teaching you how to rebuild an engine. You're like, this no. is a special engine because you can rebuild it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would not be my area of expertise. So yeah. What are you watching?
0: You know, I'm in the middle of a series. Actually, I'm a little bit further along than series. it's here. A, it's it's this is a terrible confession I'm about to make. People are going to laugh so hard. <laughs> okay i'm watching one tree hill teenage drama
1: yes okay i was watching that recently too but i stopped you got bored i got a little bored and distracted i was also watching new girl at the same time so then when i got sick i had to switch
0: you just can't even imagine this show okay like and and I'm I'm four I finished the fourth season. I never thought I would last this long, but I'm four seasons. This is like twenty-eight episodes a season. That's commitment. I, yes, I finished season four. This is like when they finish high school. They graduate.
1: So what do they do after high school, or do you know yet?
0: I don't know. You well, I know a little bit, just because I watched two episodes last night. Well, well, I watched maybe 15 minutes of an episode before I fell asleep. But they yeah, they jumped to like a head four years. So you see what's happened four years Ooh. from when they graduate. But end of, end of season four, like the bad guy, the dad, his name is Dan. Yeah. Like a spoiler alert. Okay. He turns himself in, goes oh, to jail. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah,
0: he finally does the right thing.
1: Doesn't he try a few times to do the right thing or no?
0: Well, you can see there's some kind of internal thing going on there, but he never does do the right thing.
1: So finally some redemption for him.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure if he gets redemption or not. It's like no everybody's mad at him so, you know.
1: Oh. Anyway. I actually care more about who's with who. <laughs> like what relationships. Oh, well, do you want to like, know? Do you want to know yeah. where everybody
0: ends up? Cuz I could tell you. Maybe maybe our listeners don't want to hear, but I could tell you who where everybody ends up. I want to yeah. know. Later or now?
1: Later. Let's do it after.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, later. Later after give you do the <laughs> big update on what happened with the whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, you, you don't even know why he you probably don't even know why he turned himself into the police. If you have, if you stop watching.
1: Yeah, I don't.
0: Ooh, oh, mid. Oh,
1: scandal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Anyways, pretty fun. Good. good. It, 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 it's terrible. And I watch it so I can fall asleep.
1: I do so, shows like that, too. That's exactly what I either rewatch a show or find something that I don't really care about that much. So then I can fall asleep.
0: Yeah. People are going to think it's really hilarious to listen to watch One Tree Hill, but whatever. I fall asleep to it. But I also care. I also want to know how it ends up. So, whatever.
1: It's got whatever. you. It hooked you. We all have like terrible shows like that. I can't think of one right oh, now.
0: Oh, it's your terrible show. Yeah. I was, I was like, just what? trying to
1: think of like what's an embarrassing show that I've watched, about. well, I did I have watched One Tree Hill especially when it was on.
0: There's some there's some uh, reality shows out there that I think are like, Ooh, yikes."
1: Oh, well, I do watch the Kardashians.
0: Oh, there and, you go. Yeah.
1: And sister wives. So like.
0: Oh, Kristen's super into sister wives. She's definitely watching the watching sister wives. Yeah. We yeah. talk about
1: it. Yeah. 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 Oh, you do?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I won't get into that. So, so yeah. So we're going to be in Haiti next week. And so make sure you're checking our Insta stories and all those things. If you're listening to this right now and it's like the Thursday that it gets released, make sure you're listening and checking out the Insta stories because I'm sure we'll be doing some stuff from there.
1: For sure. Yeah. And we'll be tagging so you can see more.
0: So this week, and so here, this is kind of an interesting thing. All right. We all know my history, my storied history with school.
1: I'm not a big fan. Like, fan of teachers, rough, rough time in school.
0: When I was a student, I wasn't a big fan of teachers. But now, like, like when our absolute bestie is a teacher. Yeah. Right. And she's a pretty good teacher. So, uh, well, from what I understand, I guess she never tried to teach me anything, but she seems like a pretty she's good never
1: tried to. she's gonna take such offense to that <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know i don't think she's trying to teach me math or anything like that <laughs>
1: oh that's what you mean not like about life or anything like oh she's that. taught like me
0: things- tons about life
1: okay i'm just saying clarify
0: so but i i do think that as an adult i have a great Deal of respect for teachers, and so I'm kind of excited about this week's guest. Lisa Bush is joining us, and she's written some books, a couple of books actually, on empowering teachers and how how just basically walking through how how teachers can avoid burnout and some of those kinds of things. and And so we had a great kind of conversation with her. What's what's her her latest book is called Teaching Well. I think it's called Teaching Well.
1: Yeah, it has a longer title, but the beginning of it is Teaching Well.
0: Yeah, and so we get a chance to kind of chat with her a little bit about um, kind of how she. Obviously how she came to this place where she would write a book about four teachers and four parents who love uh, their kids and want their kids to do well in the education system and some of those kind of things. So it's like, you don't just, just have to be a teacher to enjoy this episode. Um, but even for parents, I think it's a good insight into kind of what goes on in the mind of a teacher as they're trying to love their kids and teach their kids and do all those kinds of things. And then all the other ins and outs of what it means to be a teacher.
1: Yeah. And especially in a profession and many people have professions like this, but that are really stressful and you're doing a lot of things and you're caring for a lot of people. It's like, that's a lot. So trying to avoid burnout, there's a lot of lessons in that. And she was a former educator. So she does have the history of being in the classroom.
0: Yeah. This isn't just somebody who's like, I think I'm gonna write a book for teachers. This isn't like a male <laughs> midwife going on here. This is somebody who's actually been a teacher and does know what it feels like. So yeah, yeah, it should be a great episode. So I hope people enjoy that and I uh, hope you're checking out our social media stuff. Um, not just for unpacked this week, but that you're checking out for, for um, kind of what we're doing on up to in Haiti. Um, always. We love it. When you like, you know, subscribe, share an episode. Somebody shared uh, an episode just last night on Facebook. I saw it.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: It's kind of a weird thing when you're scrolling through your Facebook and, you're, and somebody's like, hey, listen to this episode and you should check out this podcast Unpacked. And, and they share it and it's like, oh, that is so nice.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that.
0: Um, and it goes a long ways to help in growing our listenership and some of the things that we're trying to do at Unpacked. And, and we do think we're doing some really important stories hearing some stories that we want people to hear. So yeah, make sure that you check that out, like subscribe, share on your social media, whether it's Instagram and whatever, and tag us.
1: Yeah. We'd love to see it. We're trying to help people. It's not just about us like being, you know, famous.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We're super famous. Definitely. Definitely famous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also if you'd like to continue to support the podcast, hang on after the episode so you can hear some of our Patreon information, kind of how you can even subscribe and even give like, five dollars a month or something like that towards kind of what we're doing um we would love that so again i hope you enjoy this episode with lisa tara yeah this week we have uh lisa bush yeah uh educator author And, you know, know knower of lots of things.
1: I know, I'm excited.
0: She was a podcast host for a while.
1: She still is, Still
0: is. little pause. And you know, I have great respect for podcast hosts. Me too. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Maybe that's just because we are aware. No, uh, so much work goes into a podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. We're glad that you're here, Lisa. And um, we reached out to you a while back.
2: (laughs) It took a while, it took a while. I tend to I think when um, Tara first wrote me, I go into these writing black holes where every like you will not text messages, emails, everything gets ignored. And this was a long one. I think it was a few weeks. And then I have to apologize profusely and just know that I ignore everyone.
0: It's an exclusive ignoring what you're saying. No one gets left out. Also or, so
1: terrible to start that way. We were like calling her out that it took a minute. Like
0: no, no no Can
1: can we just talk about how quickly you respond to emails? No,
0: we should not do that. Okay.
1: Just wanted to clarify.
0: <laughs> like I don't. Yeah. A, a, like I'm really bad at it. Yeah. It's a discipline. We're we are glad that you've decided to join us, so we want to hear a little a little bit of kind of what you're up to these days and what you've been up to, even some of your some of the books that you've written and i I got the chance to read a little bit. I just glanced a little bit at some of uh, the premise around a couple of your your books that you've written. and you've got a thing for story you, you you know that's even you know a little bit of what your podcast was a little bit about and hearing some of that. and so we have a lot of similar passions, I think in common uh, around some of that kind of stuff. but Before we get to that, can you tell us, um, because we we care a lot on Unpacked about the story that leads people to their passion and your stories and I'm sure your past experiences have kind of led you to your passion about, to a passion for being an author, for being a writer and all those kind of things. So we think there must be something there. So can you give us, like, for starters, what are the facts about Lisa.
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Good question. So right now I am in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. (laughs) Um, That's I got that one check. Um, Who am I and the people in my life? That's a little more complicated. I was originally born in the States and we'll talk about that. I'm sure later on and how that shapes my worldview, but born in the States always passionate about the arts. So I, I kind of went back and forth between visual arts and fine arts. My first degree is in fine arts. I studied painting. And then I went back to get my master's in art education um, and started teaching in public school systems in Atlanta, Georgia. So this will lead up to the who are the people in your life question, I promise. Um, I was actually in Spain and um in a course designed for teachers and professors in Canada and the U.S. when I met this um, lovely Spanish man and I asked him, where are you from? And he said, well, I'm from Spain. And I said, well, where do you live? And he said, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And he would go on to become my husband. And so we got married here in Calgary. I, I flew out during my spring break as a teacher and we were married on a Friday and I flew back home the next day to go back and finish the school year in in the States. And then I moved here and I've been teaching um, in Calgary on and off for about 10 years. And um, I finally kind of dove into my love for writing, which has existed since I was like basically um, in the fourth grade. And I've published a book on wellness and teaching. And then I More recently published a novel um, that's a contemporary mystery set here in Calgary. And I have just finished my second novel after like two and a half years of. Ignoring emails and <laughs> going, going down the black holes of writing, um and just really enjoying kind of tapping into the Calgary writing community. There's so many vibrant um, groups and mentors and editors that I'm like really enjoying getting to know and working with. So that's kind of my current status. I have two kids. Um, I was gonna say young, but they're growing up. They're gonna be in grade two and four next year and Um, yeah, we actually just got back from a long, um, trip back to Spain to visit family there. So it's been a awesome kind of restful start to the summer.
0: Wow. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what, what, um, what was kind of the inciting incident that sent you into teaching, into education?
2: I come from a family of educators, (laughs) so um, my mom is a career teacher, and when you have a fine arts degree, um, I did work for a while um, in the art industry, and then I did work for a while painting, and um, you know, trying to make it in Atlanta as a solo painter is is challenging. So my mom kept saying, "Well, why don't you why don't you try teaching? Why don't you go into teaching?" And so that's when I went back and got my master's in art education. And in the states, it's a little different here than in in Alberta. In Alberta, my teaching certificate I can teach all grades, all subjects. But in the states, I'm a art specialist, so I was certified to teach art. So I was a middle school art teacher, and I did some elementary.
0: I love it. Okay, where did so? Where in the states did you grow up? Is that that maybe matters in terms of your upbringing? And like, but tell us a little bit. What was Lisa like? What was little Lisa like?
2: Yeah, you know what? Um, little Lisa was a lot like. 45 year old. actually, <laughs> That's Very much for on the Indian gram, as we were talking about um, for before. But um, let's yeah, it growing up absolutely made a, a huge impact. So I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. And it was interesting, because my mother and father came from very different backgrounds. So my father was Like born and raised in Mississippi. I think I was the sixth generation Mississippian on that side. Um, He was raised Episcopalian. And then you have my mom's side of the family. And so her grandparents were all immigrants um, to the States from Poland, Hungary, and Ireland. And my mother's father was in the Marines. So my mom grew up all over the continental U.S. She lived some in Hawaii. She went to school for three years in Spain. um, And she was raised very much Catholic. And so my parents met um, in Washington, D.C. And when they got married, I think it was the first time my mom had ever lived in the southern U.S. And so What this did, I think it was a gift, really, I didn't, I didn't necessarily view it that as a time, but um, through my relationship, like with my parents, and then my extended family, we were very close with grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles. I understood that there were many ways of being, there are many ways of living, there are many ways of worshiping and not on a hierarchical level, but just on a linear, you know, just different ways of navigating the world. Um, so like some of my family lived in the same town that they were born in, or they lived in a town a few miles away. And then like, I had cousins that spent a year studying in Indonesia, um, for example. So I think that kind of, I'm going to use my teacher vocabulary, but that like pluralism or that worldview, um, stuck with me throughout my life and, and it continues today and, and very much exists within my, my teaching my parents actually ended up separating and divorcing. I think their worldview was very different on many levels. um, But that has made a strong impact. And I think, you know, sad to say, I was thinking about this now, like in 2023, when we're trying to legislate morality in parts of the states or legislate, you know, ways of worshiping or ways of being, I think that that Early experience is one I'm really grateful for. And I'm grateful for that. It's kind of always been my my perspective.
0: It's it is a funny thing that we do we don't always realize the the nuance or the gifts that our parents give us from having these different perspectives on things. When you think about that in terms of maybe your parents, but even other family members, what do you what do you think you most got or understood from one of them or the other?
2: Yeah, you know, it's taken me. So Evan, this is like the years of therapy. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm on the other side of the tunnel. I'm 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 the light. But um so I think that every family member had a different way of navigating life and and probably had different expectations for me. So I'll use like two specific examples. So like let's say for example, I know like my father's mother my grandmother who I I grew up very close with all my grandparents which was like a huge gift but you know when we were talking about universities um or college it was very much expected that I would attend the University of Mississippi or Old Miss and join a sorority and that was that and then I look at my mom's sister so my aunt And she was like um, a professor, a PhD. She was marching for women's rights um, in Washington, DC, bringing her young daughter with her to these marches. And, you know, I was able to kind of figure out, you know, attending the University of Mississippi and joining a sorority isn't for me, but you know, marching at the time, I'd probably be up for it now, but marching on Washington DC and, you know, getting a PhD. Um, she was in in uh in the northern US wasn't for me either. And so I think it 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 let me, you know, by seeing the aunts and the uncles and the cousins all taking very different paths, it was like, okay, so you have to figure out your own path. I think it would have been a lot harder if it was more of a homogenous environment and everyone was doing the same thing. I think the pressure would be intense. But since, you know, I had aunts and cousins going off and doing their thing, I ended up going to Colorado State University. And I had never been like west of Louisiana until I um, went to visit the campus. And I just thought, well, this is different and I'm going to try it. So I think it allowed me to kind of take bigger risks and explore because everyone else, Seemed to be doing what fit for them. So it kind of gave me this unspoken permission to say, well I'm gonna go figure out my journey and my path, which was oh, pretty cool.
0: I love that. Was um so you you decide you're gonna become a teacher. Was was that a part of what led to teaching? Was like, no, I want to teach people, I wanna I'm 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 assuming it was teach young people the arts and some of those kinds of experiences was it really about helping them discover their way or were you were just supposed to be a teacher and that's how it was like your your family
2: (laughs) let's see i'm gonna say i think my experience with teaching so is it me helping them find their way i think my experience with teaching has always been i have felt the students give me more than i feel like i have probably given them um I I loved learning. I always loved learning. A friend of me a friend of mine in university said you're either going to be like the perpetual student or you're going to be a teacher because you just love learning. I loved reading, I loved exploring, I loved asking questions. Um so I think it was more of the environment, the environment of teaching of that. You know, there's this kind of cliche that we say so much that it doesn't mean anything of the lifelong learner. Um, but I really like, that would be my goal in life is just to keep learning. And so being in an environment where I could get paid, you know, to, to teach and to ask questions and and things like that. Um, and then I did, I mean, my gosh, I could talk about my early experiences in education forever and I won't, but I had kind of two experiences early on. One was a little more negative and one was positive that like kind of made me fascinated with education and still to this day and and the first one happened early on in grade 1 and 2 I would have been what you call like a reluctant reader or a at risk student I don't know what label they would have put on me um and I was later diagnosed with ADHD and I think that has a lot to do with it but because of the, I came from a privileged family. So when I was struggling to read in grade two and, you know, the school kind of called my parents in and said, look, this, you know, she's not, she can't spell, she can't read. And I hate, Oh, I hated. um, Like it just words didn't make sense. Letters didn't make sense to me. My mom worked with a school and keep in mind, she went on to be a teacher. She worked with the school. I had a lovely educational assistant, um that worked with me you know in what would have been like a broom closet off the library but she worked with me one-on-one and when that didn't work my mom um took me to see a private tutor and my mom was working with me hours and hours every night and um something clicked it happened probably in grade three or four um and I just started reading and I couldn't stop I was always with a book and um I'm not sure how familiar you are with um The education system in the states, but they love like standardized tests. Like, there's so much at stake whether a student passes or not. Sometimes the funding of the school is determined by standardized tests. So, I was given one of these standardized tests in grade four. And afterwards, the school called my parents back in. And apparently, because of my results on the standardized test, I was now eligible for what they called like the enrichment program because I had done so well. The point of this story is I think at a young age, I started to kind of question things about the educational system and what it measured. So I think I didn't have this articulate, you know, vocabulary, but I think I started to understand like the test was measuring that I had access to an educational assistant that, you know, my mom was proficient in English and she could teach me and teach me how to take tests and that my family had financial privilege to see a tutor, to send me to a tutor. So I think like I was probably the only student in graduate school that like loved the course on the history of educational policy in the States. Like, I think it just fascinated me with every policy. I'm always saying, who is this benefiting and who is this hurting? You know, these standardized tests, who's benefiting and who's hurting. So like, for example, even now in Alberta, when they cut Puff funding, which is um, for at needs kids in early, um, in early years. So I think it's like it starts at age four. Who is this hurting and who is benefiting? Or when they cut educational assistance, who is this hurting and benefiting? So like that fascination, I started teaching at a very high need school in Atlanta. And I think just kind of the that interest um, with it. And then having said that, a, a more positive, a little more positive story was in middle school. I had two teachers that literally, I can say, changed the course of, of my life. One was my literature teacher. And I was always kind of the quiet introverted in my head kid. I wasn't particularly, you know, skilled at sports or um, outgoing. And I remember one day at the end of, of class, she gave me a book and the book was for roots. And she says, why don't you go home and read it and bring it back and tell me what you think about it? Um, and like, this would be illegal now (laughs) in several states with, with what's happening right now, but she just kept, and she gave me, we read the Odyssey in class, and then she gave me the Iliad and she'd say, go home and read it. And, and she kind of, through her action, she never said as much, but she kind of, she made me feel special. Like I had a talent with reading, um, and then something similar happened in my fine arts class. And it just made me realize that beyond the red tape and the bureaucracy of the public school system, or I was in a private school, the school system period, um, you as the teacher have the power to change the trajectory of a kid's life through your action. And often those are little actions and they're not on a standardized test and they're not part Mm of, you know, the curriculum. So I think that fascinated me.
0: And I I love it. I love it. Actually, it's, it's an interesting thing because in so many ways, like your first story, you know, she she doesn't read yet. She doesn't recognize letters. She's, you know, struggling, struggling, struggling. Like, this is a story that could have gone the a very different direction in terms of even what you've come to learn about yourself and who you are and some of those things. In fact, in my story, that is actually what happened. It, it, I, I struggled to read, struggled all those kind of things. Still a slow reader, all those kinds of things. But to me, I translated that into like, Evan's not very intelligent. Evan's not smart. All those kind of things, and and then that is a narrative that I took with me throughout a good portion of my adult life. Even just in the last, like this last year, I wrote a a, a book that helps people to kind of walk through and work through their story using the tool of the Enneagram. I can't believe that I did that. Because it, because it, to me it was I've liked books I like I like reading books actually I like learning I'm exactly like you I'm pretty committed to trying to be a growing person my whole of my life and I think authors and writers who spend the time to articulate a thought the in at extent to the to the extent in which it takes to write a book have really thought it through I might not always agree with it but they've worked it out and so the idea that I came to to a space of writing. And it's a smaller book. It's a writing workbook kind of a thing. There are stories in it, though, and all that kind of stuff. I couldn't believe it. And you know when I noticed when I realized it was such a big deal? The day it came in the mail. I didn't even, re- I was like, yeah, I'm working on this project. It's going to be good. going to help everybody work through their stories. That's going to be good. I did not realize how healing and how important it was to me to, to do the very thing that I never thought I would be able to do Like, how, how am I doing this? I'm not that smart. And it was a message I got all the way back in grade two, which is, you know, I'm just relating to the story, but you had this, somebody changed it. Somebody changed it for you and it clicked.
2: That's what I was wondering if you were missing that, her name was Miss Ellington. If Evan, if you were missing the Miss Ellington that gave you the book, because here's the thing that I didn't mention, like in that class. I was not the smartest kid in the class. I was not the best student in the class. Like there were way smarter kids than me. So it wasn't, but she saw, I think my love for story. So I'm wondering if you had, I'm using air quotes, a Miss Ellington or my art teacher was a Mr. Grundon that slid the book in your hand or whatever it was, right? I wonder if that would have changed your perception.
0: I think so. I absolutely think so. What's what's fascinating, and I'm getting to a question here, the next question for you, but it's like, what is fascinating is you can remember the names of the teachers who made a difference in your life. I can remember the names of the teachers in my class, in my school, who didn't like me. And so I just, it just goes to say, it goes to show how important teachers are in kids' lives to be able to change a trajectory, like you said. So you've written... One of the books that you wrote is is called Teaching Well, right? Yeah. And and my understanding of of Teaching Well is that it's it's about how you teach in the classroom, but it's also about how do you how do you find and create healthy balance in your life.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: So, what what or is there a story behind why you wrote that book?
2: There is. There's a there's a very definite turning point So I loved education. I love teaching. um, And I threw myself into it, right? Like it was my life. I'm not, this is not a recommendation. (laughs) This is just a story. So, and it worked. I was single until I I was, you know, I got married when I was 30. And then my husband um, is also very passionate with his career. So It was fine that I wanted to work late and, you know, spring breaks were spent doing lesson plans and researching and weekends were often spent at school. And um, on top of that, too, I have to say, like, because I've always had a love for writing and art, all of this has always been kind of being juggled with getting up at five and writing or, you know, getting off on Friday and shutting myself into a painting studio until, you know, late Sunday night. So there were there was a lot going on, but I was able to to juggle until we decided to start a family. And this it, this was even pre pre birth. I remember. um just being pregnant and, and just your inner, my energy levels dropped. Right. And with the hormones and the brain capacity. And I remember I was starting the school year and I was teaching like grade eight language arts, grade nine language arts, um, grade eight social studies. So the marking load was intense. And a a lot of that was a congregated gifted program. So these kids um, move at a much faster pace so they can write essays faster than I could mark them. And I walked into school that year, early on in the year, and our I think it was our language arts consultant was talking to our principal And it was one of those, they were having a serious conversation. I was just, you know, the school teacher walking by. And she turned to me and she said, Lisa, how are you doing? How is your summer? And I looked at her in the face and I said, I'm doing horrible. And I think I want to quit teaching. (laughs) She's like, we need to talk. Um, And I'm grateful her name was Jeanette McDonald because she pulled me aside. And her background was obviously language arts. And she started to teach me. How to teach language arts in a way that was more meaningful and more beneficial to the kids, and that would lighten my teaching load. And so, I started going to the teachers' conventions around Alberta, um, and in kind of the name of the. The session was lighten your load and so there are all sorts of things that I had learned about peer editing and self-editing and giving small bits of feedback along the way so that by the time you collect a major assignment you've seen it four different times and it's really easy to grade and the kids know exactly where they stand throughout the process so it's not a shock and then that evolved into once I had the kids really focusing on work-life balance and and creating systems and creating organization and habits that made teaching a little more manageable with now adding, you know, a one-year-old into the mix, or at one point it was a two-year-old and a one-year-old into the mix while teaching. Yeah.
0: And so it sounds to me like you, so is it a pretty technical book in terms of like some of those systems and processes and ways in which to create a healthy balance between those things?
2: Some of it is, yeah. Like I do go quite a bit into curriculum and assessment, and I um, I went into neuroscience.
0: Oh, I I love it! I love it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And so, what what, you know, one kind of broad takeaway that was surprising—I wasn't expecting it—but when I started marking less and taking home less work and changing. Um, the way that I taught and assessed, it actually was more beneficial from the kids from even from like a scientific point of view, like studying how we learn, how we deal with feedback. So that was a really cool surprise wrapped up in there that I was working less. And I felt like my students were learning more.
0: Yeah. How do we deal with criticism? I'm curious. That's what I just heard you say. How, how does the brain work? How do you, how do you help? How do you criticize a kid, but not criticize a kid?
2: Well, yeah. Cause I'm like, well, wait a minute. Feedback and criticism are like two different things. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. I think.
0: They should be. Yeah, they should totally.
2: be. I'll give you an example. I recently submitted a manuscript to be reviewed and I had 23 pages, single space a feedback on a manuscript and this is an editor i would work with the rest of my life like she's amazing so um i think there's i think there's a difference
0: but i find it interesting because some of the stuff that even i've been learning about self-criticism or inner like that that actually basically criticism doesn't work
1: as motivation as
0: motivation but but we've come to this space even as coaches or even as teachers or whatever we somehow feel like criticism is like helping ourselves and others to get better or to challenge us to get better but it doesn't actually work that way
2: so one thing that i and i think most teachers throughout the course of history do and i'll just use for example grade eight or nine language arts because that was kind of my wheelhouse what does not improve is for me to say you know tara evan spend a month working on an essay turn it in I'm going to slap a grade on and give it back to you. And you're done. You've learned like you've learned nothing. That would be like, you know, if I wrote a manuscript, submitted it, got my 23 pages of feedback and then said, "Okay, it's ready to be published. Like that's not that's not how you learn and grow. So what does work is small bits of feedback along the way. So what happened if I said Tara and Evan, we're going to write a five paragraph essay, because you will have that on the provincial achievement test in grade nine, and I have to teach it to you. And it's also a really good way to teach persuasive writing and organization of your thoughts. So we're going to start with your introduction essay or your introduction paragraph. We're going to start with your introduction paragraph. I'll model it for you. You guys go off and write it and then come back. Let's look at that introduction paragraph together. How do you think yours is, Evan? What could you have done better? How do you think yours is, Tara? Let me go home. I'm going to write some feedback. I'm going to give it back to you. Here you go. Now you're going to make that better. You have a week to make that paragraph better. Hmm. Oh, look at how much you've improved. My gosh, compare this paragraph to your first one. Now let's work the second paragraph, the body of your essay. Let's do that. Okay, work on your first one. Okay, now here's the checklist. Go through what do you, how do you think you did? Now I'm going to take it home and I'll give you some, or or usually I would, I would sit there with you. I'm going to sit there with you and I'm going to ask you some questions. Do you think you could do this? Maybe you could find a source for this. Could you add a fact here? Okay, now I'm going to give you a week. Go and prove it. So that by the time you've turned in your essay, I I am fully aware exactly where Tar is and exactly where Evan is, and you know where you are too. And I tell you what, I've never given so many. High grades in my life is when I did that. But that's how we worked, right? That's how the world works. That's how the publishing industry works. Like I can't tell you how many edits you go through before that book hits the shelf and it makes me a better writer. So um, and that was taught, that was when I talked with that language arts consultant. That's one of the first things she said to me. She said to me, Lisa, I took my kid to the Calgary public library. And they had an artist reading like a board book, like the most simple children's book. And she raised her hand and asked the, the, excuse me, it was an author, the author, she asked the author, how many revisions did you do to get that very simple board book? And I think the author said 94. And she said, so why in our classrooms do we say, here's an essay, go do it. And then we slap a grade and then we move on. They're not learning and we're exhausted (laughs) with all of the marking. So that was huge. And and what I read about feedback um, and small bits of feedback, consistent feedback, ongoing feedback, it does actually help. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and what's interesting is you, even in the way you gave the feedback, it was a question. It wasn't like you were giving feedback, but in a question format, which also is less than being like, it doesn't sting as much as when you're like, this is bad. Change this. <laughs> it's like, oh, I wonder if you could add this in or this might make it stronger. Have you thought about this? It, it's more empowering.
0: Yeah. I definitely want to take a class from you on how to write a five paragraph essay. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. I'm sorry. laughs> I, I I think that that's one of the really helpful. That's very helpful. That I, I for sure grew up in an environment. I went to school in an environment where the grade was all that mattered at the end, it, it, and and that it was done. That's the way I was taught. Like you, you do an assignment, so it's done, so you don't have to do it, and do it just good enough so you don't have to do it again, so you don't fail and have to do it again. So I, I don't I don't know that that was a great. Well, I know that wasn't a great technique of teaching, but it is the kind of teaching I received. So, I love it that you're writing this. And, and I actually do think that whether it's teaching in uh, elementary school or high school or in any, any aspect, great teachers are learners. And so, when you've instilled the practice of learning yourself, being a learner yourself, you become better, you become a better teacher. I think it's true in a lot of areas. So, I love that. So, you, but you move on from writing a here's how a system and here's how you can teach well kind of writing. And you you've written some like novels.
1: Yeah, but when did you write this book? Like, oh, yeah. when oh, yeah. did you yeah. did you transition out of teaching at some point too? And then when did you write this book? Like, because also, if you're like, I I'm kind of amazed by you right now that you wrote a book and you were a teacher and you had little little kids and I'm a working mom too and I'm like, that's a lot. That's a lot. So what was the timeline? How did this it was all four work? in the morning? <laughs>
0: yeah, I
2: know, but I'm she like, said
0: she was writing, I'm gonna need a morning. breakdown. <laughs> 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 <I'm> like. <laughs>
2: Well, it led it led to burnout. Surprise, surprise. Um, So this (laughs) book was published in 2019. My second child was born in 2016. Uh, My first child was born in 2014. So, I mean, it it took years. I mean, it was so. 2014 was around the time where I thought this is ridiculous. I need to start looking at more effective ways. So, kind of the research started around 2014, and. 2014, 2015 was when I was on maternity leave, but I was doing quite a bit of teachers' conventions and talking. And then in 2016, when I went on my second maternity leave, that was when I started, I'm like, this should be a book. Um, And so I started writing it and pitched it. 2017, 2018, um, Pembroke Publishing picked it up and it was published in January of 2019. And then I was Um, working as an educational consultant with two kids and then trying to promote the book so that when COVID came around in, let's say, I think it was like February, March of 2020, um, I was a school administrator and I worked until the end of that school year. And that's when I resigned. I formally resigned from the school district I was working with um, for a variety of reasons. But mostly I was taking my advice and I was like this, like, I can't. And we can, we can talk about it more, but there's so much you as a teacher can do within your own like microcosm of your classroom and your family and your school culture that you can do for your wellness. And then there's a whole nother, kind of circle that's completely with like outside of your realm of control, like global pandemics (laughs) or, (laughs) you know, um, provincial wide policy. And so kind of the two came to a head and my husband and I decided that I would, um, resign and stay home with my kids. I stayed home for a year with them and they went to Calgary board of education hub learning, and then also take time to write. So that's what I've been working on for the past few years. It's just, it's been like such an amazing privilege, but just to have that time to sit and teach myself to write And My gosh, that is, it's not a one and done thing. So that's kind of the timeline. Um, City hall was published in 2021. Um, and then I have a book that should be out this winter and it's actually a mystery also it takes place here in Calgary, but it's all about a public school system, a fictional public school system here in Calgary.
0: Okay, I love it. And, and a lot of, so I only read the the intros, but I, I got a, I got a glimpse into that a lot of this is about in particular around like women and how do women succeed? What does this look like for them? How do they experience life and go through life? Why, why around topics like that? Like I, I the second book that you wrote, second book, third book that you wrote, because I didn't think of teaching well, it's around what? Five, is it five women who experience a story from the right? Like
2: it, it changes perspective. Yeah. From the perspective of five different women that are all, mothers um four of them are in the public school system teaching and then one's a university professor but it kind of their struggles with navigating this system yeah
0: yeah was there was there something about like a sense that there's something you want your audience to understand about what female like women teachers go through what women the perspective that they see is is there something there
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think to answer your question, just a short version is I think it goes back again to my mom. I mean, I was raised from the age of 10 onwards by a single mom who was a school teacher in Mississippi, raising three kids on her own. So, um, and then she went back to go back to school during that time as well. So, you know, I've always been like super fired up about like gender issues um especially when having kids with the amount like the unequal distribution of of unpaid work that goes on in the home and the expectations and i think at one point in time you know we have this like oh teaching is such a great a great um career for for parents you're done at three and you get the weekends (laughs) and the evenings off and, you know, for whatever reasons throughout the years, it just, it, it it is quite challenging. It is quite challenging for parents. And I think kind of COVID was, it lit a spark. Like I've always been interested, as I've mentioned with policy and who's making these policies, but I think that... When we were at the time, gosh, it's easy. It's easy to forget and it blurs. But I remember there's a time like if your kid gets sick, they need to stay home for like two weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. That was like a provincial policy. And at the same time, my like contractual policy with my school district was I can't take a sick leave for a kid. Mm -hmm. So like that, like, oh, there's like there's anger and then there's the anger of like it might be parent anger. It might be mom anger. But, you know, I was like 70 something percent of our teachers in Alberta are female. And at my school that I was with at the time and an administrator at the time, I believe every single teacher except for one was parent to like school age kids. How can we be here and teach and support our students? And if our kids get sick and need to stay home for two weeks, um, we can. And so it kind of, it did. So I started thinking, like, how would this affect, you know, a single mom? How would this affect teachers in various stages of their life? So that was, that kind of lit the fire, you know, there are books on teaching, but a lot of the focus is on the students, right? Like how the students change. And mm-hmm. I thought, what I want to do is I want to write a story that's all about the lives of the teachers. So, how it affects their marriage, how it affects their mental health, how it affects possible substance abuse. Like, really look into their life. Yeah.
0: I, I think I'm going to. I'm going to stumble this out a, a little bit as I say it, but th- there seems to be an inequality around understanding what teachers actually do. So, like it is, just like you said, it's you know, some of those policies and weird things during COVID that did absolutely go on. There was an injustice to some of that and an unfairness for sure, in particular around teachers. And, and women. and Maybe we're work- just talking we're- our problems. Yeah. Well,
1: no, and I think women, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I think in general, it was, like, very revealing, like you're saying, in other professions. Who, who
0: stays home with who kids. Who stays home, who is mm-hmm. taking
1: on, like, women were leaving the workforce at alarming rates yeah. during the last three years. They had, they had no choice. Well.
0: Well, they had a choice, but it was, it was not a good one. <laughs> yeah. The, the other choice was not a good either yes. choice either. And I think that that's one of the things that it shed light on, at least for me. But also, also, I don't think that people understand the general population doesn't understand the the amount of stories that teachers carry with them. And very little, very little attention, I think, is given to teachers in terms of preparing them for that. But it's inevitably going to happen. You're going to hear heartbreaking stories of what your a child you're teaching is experiencing. And... A lot of teachers get into it because they love kids and they they want to see them grow. And like you said, they want to help change lives. How were you able to care for yourself when you heard stories of kids you were, you were teaching?
2: Yeah, so I took them home and I can say with the teachers I worked with in the States and Canada over the last... I mean, it's been six, it was 16 years, you know, on a... I don't, I don't remember hearing a teacher ever say, like, I leave it at school. Mm
1: -hmm. Like, I don't,
2: (laughs) I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you can leave the marking at school, that's fine, right? Or you can leave. And in fact, I actually talk about that in the book. But no, the if you're forming relationships with students, and I think you have to, if you want a classroom of trust and respect, like that has to be um, held together by a relationship. So if you're forming relationships with students, it is difficult to, to shut that off or to turn that off when you go home. And I am terrible at it. But to answer your question, kind of the short, the short answer is I've I've been fortunate or lucky um, with the schools that I've worked in to have a really strong community with other teachers. So you're not holding that. And especially you're not holding it alone. It's not the experience um, that's difficult or the stories that's difficult. It's holding it it's not releasing it. So like um, I learned that you make yourself, if you can go to lunch and you sit with a group of teachers that you love and admire and respect, and you share your stories and you stay after um, when you need to, or you get together on the weekends, but there's no way, um, Evan, I could have done that if I was doing it in a bubble. And I think Like if there's one piece of advice I have to first-year teachers going, um, joining the workforce this upcoming year, it'd be like, find your people. You know, there were times I would teach a lesson that I was, you know, I knew the teacher down the hall and I had planned together and it would like erupt into this like flames of disaster and the bell would ring and I would literally run down the hall into the teacher's room and be like that was a disaster oh my gosh and you know we'd laugh at it together and we'd work through it together but I think that that was probably my number one line of defense
0: yeah you know what's fascinating with one of our favorite psychologists who joins us pretty regularly her name is is Maureen In in all of our mental health, she does all kinds of things from trauma to lots of different things. Um, She almost always comes back to community, being one of the most important ways Mm -hmm. towards healing, towards health, towards betterment, towards growth, transforming, all of those things. Every single time she brings up community. If you're an addict, the way through addiction, is obviously via lots of other work, but always in the context of community. And it's teaching, whether it's counselors, whether it's teachers, whether it's pastors, whoever it might be, the way towards health continues to come back to community. Don't do it in a bubble. And I I think there's real, I don't think we spend enough time talking about it the value of your community and the people who are close to you and hold you together that, that keep you safe mm-hmm. it's from, from some of the stories that because stories, some of the hard stories that you hear as a teacher could destroy you because they you lose all sense of belief in humanity <laughs> if you don't experience some community afterwards.
2: So my, my first year teaching was, in Atlanta. This was before I went back to school for my master's. And I, I did what a lot of first year teachers do. You're treading water, right? So you don't have time to go down to the stuff, you know, to eat, you're eating lunch over the photocopier. or you're eating lunch over your desk. And that first year of teaching, I think, I made like every wellness mistake you could possibly make. And I like crashed and burned. I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And that first year was a fantastic learning tool of like what not to do. But when when I look back, like what was really different about that first year, it was I didn't have the capacity to reach out and create community. I was trying to do it on my own and it didn't work. And so when I went back to teaching after graduate school, I had like um, several people that were in my cohort on speed dial, you know, that were fellow elementary school art specialists. And we'd go sit in like Piedmont Park in Atlanta on the weekends with like a picnic and just drill each other, you know, ask questions. What do you do with this student? I heard this, is this something, you know? And so after that first year, I really, really made it a a priority, but it is hard. It's hard for first year teachers. You can feel, it's easy to feel isolated when you're just trying to like make it through.
0: Survive. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: Is that just like how it's set
1: up to get into the profession? Like you're not the first teacher that's told me that, that the first couple of years are really, really hard to get going. Is that just like a cultural thing for teachers or is there a different way? Like what your book was obviously needed to help. People from burning out, but it seems a very like a very common theme.
2: I, I do think it's a common, a combination of things. Um it could be sure what isn't what isn't being taught in, you know, teacher service courses. Um, like I never had a course option on minimizing your assessment load. <laughs> like that was not offered <laughs> at the university level. I think too, there's something to be said for just the sheer volume. Of work, like if you just look at an elementary teacher, they're teaching um, six or seven subjects a day, depending on what program they're in. And then if they have like some classes in Alberta um, in elementary, like the class sizes are getting larger, so you might have thirty kids. So I think it's 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 a combination of many factors, but I do think the sheer volume uh, can kind of knock you off your feet to to begin with. Yeah. Mm-hmm
0: and then you add into it you got, you are a person too like you have a life and you know in your case you are a mom you are a, you know you your wife you're an author. you're doing other things too to have balance anyways it's kind of a kind of an interesting thing. what what is being missed like when you think about our teacher my daughter's a teacher or she's a teacher she wants to be a teacher she's done one year at the university of Lethbridge and she wants to be an English teacher that's literally what she wants to do
2: yay good
0: she's you she's an enneagram four <laughs> and she's excited she she wants to teach high school i think is what she'd really like to teach at the end of the day what is she not getting what do you wish you had gotten when you were not ni- she's 19
2: well i think i'm gonna i'm gonna pause here for a second and to say Coming from the States to Canada, I am going to have a moment that Canada is doing a really solid job with education. Like when I went and started teaching here um, in Calgary, I thought not only do I want to spend the rest of my career, you know, in the Canadian school districts, but those are the school districts I want to raise my kids in like these. So. There's a lot that's going well, and I I've never experienced um, the, the Canadian college system. I would say if you would ask that question, like what can we do to set your daughter up and teachers up for success, I think I think it's for us as a society. It's, see, I'm going to go for, i I'm going deep and yeah, wide. go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I think it's for us as a society to say we value no matter. You know, if we're in retirement age, no matter if we're single with no kids and we don't ever want to start a family, um, no matter if our kids are in a private school system to say we as a society value public schools, we want an educated, you know, society here in Alberta. And we're willing to support that. I think that really makes a difference. I mean, things, and we it's I've said this so many times, I feel like record, but things like class size. I think your daughter's probably going to get a solid education. I've worked with um schools where they're, you know, they do quite a bit of practicums where teachers are in the school, which is awesome and great. And then she's gonna have student teaching, which is you know, great. And I bet she's going to graduate with a strong bond, um, not only between her and professors, but between people in her graduating class, it's going to set her up for success. But my gosh, if your daughter could walk into, you know, a grade eight language arts classroom with 24 students and, you know, an educational assistant to help those with complex learning needs would pop in a few times a week, like that's going to do so much. Um, The school that I started at was horribly underfunded, like across the board. So there was so much else going on on there. So, you know, it's not I don't know what the university systems are doing. I've, I've talked in a few classes and they seem to have like a really like they're graduating lovely teachers. And, you know, I think they're doing a lot of things. Well, I think, you know, just for we as a society to say, we support public education and we support our teachers that would help. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you think part of that is just like also understanding the workload of even teachers, like what, they're doing that was one of the things with our friend, Alicia, who who shared about it. I found really interesting the feedback we were getting of just like understanding what a teacher's day looks like and all the things that you've kind of mentioned, too, that you're carrying to try and make it so students can be really su- successful themselves and then also your own lives. So, like, I think we, we don't have it's kind of a mystery. We have our own idea of what a classroom was like only from our experience and so understanding and being willing to yeah. like learn a little bit more about what classrooms are like for our kids or whatever would be more helpful.
2: Yeah, there was the writer, I forget his name. He wrote like 34 third graders in one class bunny but it's, it's a hilarious collection of short stories. And there's one chapter and it opens with like, you know, um, just this list of like 20 different things that, you know, everything from like, um, helping Johnny get off the bus, Sheila's crying because she can't tie her shoe, helping Sheila tie <laughs> her shoe. Johnny left his lunch at home on a, you know, is dysregulated. And, and he said, this is the list of things I did between 901 and 905. <laughs> and he said, I asked my friend who works in the corporate world to make the same list. And it was like, it showed the friends list and it was like 901 to 905 and it's like stood in line for a cup of coffee so i mean it's it's i've worked and i've done office work before um and and it's just it's bizarre and even when i went um into consulting where you're not in the classroom it's just yeah just i think people understanding it's non-stop stimulus like it's non-stop stimulus coming at you from all angles All hours of the day and so when the bell rings at three like (laughs) you're just done teaching like you haven't cleaned up the mess of papers on your desk you haven't you know planned for tomorrow so i think yeah certainly an understanding but then just a general consensus to say like we're willing to do what we need to to make sure we have you know a very well educated generation coming up yeah yeah but I am going to say too, it's also eternal optimism because you see, like, I think back to all my careers in teaching and there might have been one kid, I won't name names, but one kid in 16 years that I'm like, oof, like, I don't think this is, <laughs> you know, like you have challenging kids and you have kids that need lots of attention and you have kids that need lots of support, but you see generally speaking class after class, after class of good people. And I think that has to be said too, that, you know, in all situations, like that's why I eventually decided to have a family of my own is because I'm like, Little people are like my favorite humans. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're so they're so just there's so much hope for them. And maybe that's one of the reasons why too. I keep going back to education because I think it's just if you want to invest your hope in something, do it in the next generations.
1: Hmm. Oh,
0: I love that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit what as we kind of wrap up. What do you want people to know about your writing? About the books that you've written, not just the storyline, but what do you hope that people are getting when they read one of your one of your books?
2: That's such a good question, Evan. First of all, I hope you're entertained <laughs> because we need entertainment, and so I try. It's it's a it's a fine line, you know, to to grab the reader in and pull them in and keep them flipping the pages. So that would be the first hope because I love a good story. And then I think my second hope, and it goes back, it's interesting, it goes right back to what we're saying about assessment, but I hope it gets you to ask questions. Like, that's it. I I actually asked myself like, what, because a lot of my, my novels that, you know, the two that I've written are very much rooted in like social justice issues and um, gender issues or political issues. And I'm like, okay, what, And, and, and what I'm learning and as I'm becoming a better writer, it's not providing answers. It's not saying this is the way to do it, because I think there are many ways to do it. But I think it's just to get the person to go, huh? huh." Whenever I read a book or when I have a conversation with someone, I feel like they've taken my understanding and like stretched it or turned it inside out and upside down. It's like the best feeling in the world. And so I think that would be it. So primarily to entertain, but then to kind of say, well, I've never considered that before. Or I wonder what would happen if then I would think that would be like huge. Huge success.
0: We love that. Yeah, I love it. Um, I love that the the you bring up like social justice issues and just how do we shed light on some of these things in our culture that's that still need change that still need to grow and evolve. And then how do you do it without harm? Not I, I was going to say without har- harming, without causing harm, without upsetting people to the point where you just become a villain rather than somebody pointing out the broken thing. I'm still trying to figure this out because I do see that that we are a broken people too. We have our own social justice issues in Alberta in Calgary. We don't even need to go that much bigger. We can say in Calgary, but how do you see it as your responsibility as a person who sheds light which I think teachers are, authors are, podcast hosts are. How do you see it as your responsibility to shed light on the broken things? Knowing that, because here's the problem. You shed light on the broken things and also in the corner are some of the people that have made the choices for that to happen or have allowed that to happen or given permission for that to happen. How do you do it? How do you challenge people? To see that it's a hard question. I want you to answer it so I know because I don't know how yet. But help, help us out. How, how have you done it?
2: Well, I've done it the wrong ways mostly. Okay. I mean,
0: we can learn from those too.
2: <laughs> yeah, a wrong way. I mean, I tend to. I don't know if it's my personality or upbringing, but I tend to go from like silent to silent to silent to raging angry. Um, And that is not, neither of those are effective. So I went through the, um, there's a writing center here in Calgary, and I went through their manuscript um, review service. And I was blessed (laughs) to be paired with um, Susan Forrest, who is an amazingly talented writer, but an amazingly talented editor. And I later found out she was an educator. So it's, it's, it's a gift to teach someone, you know, how to correct their mistakes. But when she was reading my manuscript, I very clearly had good guys and bad guys. And she was having none of that. She said that everyone has villains within them. No one is that good. And everyone has um, goodness within them. And the thing that's going to keep your person, your reader turning the page is that unknown. Is this a good guy or a bad guy? You know, well, they seem good, but they just thought that really, you know, terrible thought, or, you know, well, gosh, they seem kind of horrible, but then they just did a nice gesture. And I think that for me with teaching, the old like 1940s education model of hitting the student over the head with a hammer and I'm gonna instill this knowledge in you doesn't work. Um, And writing a story, you know, this is bad, this is good. And I'm gonna teach you that this is bad, this is good, doesn't work. I think getting the person on board with curiosity, with intrigue, with interest, with personal um, connection, if you can connect personally with it, I think that works. So I think there's a subtlety and there's an art to social justice work. And I'll go back just to one of my favorite um, writers, Ibram X. Kendi. I've learned a lot from his writing and in one of his books, he says like effective. He, he talks a lot about anti-racism work and he says effective anti-racism work is work that works So if you're having rallies and protests and it's not changing it, it's not effective. If you're having conversations and storytelling and it's not work, it's not changing, it's not effective. So he's really um, quite candid with saying like, it's not like there's, you know, follow this formula and it works and follow this formula and it doesn't work. It says, you know, things that involve change is what works and, and what that looks like. There is no clear checklist. So that's kind of been my let's try this. Well, that was a disaster. Okay, let's try something a little bit different and let's listen to a lot of feedback and let's um yeah, connect. But you're right, there's a subtlety because people will shut down if they feel like they're being pressured or they're being um forced into thinking something. I certainly would. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I'm so I'm so glad I asked. Yeah, okay. That was a great that it was a great way of helping to helping us to understand that. Like I, one of the things that came to mind for me was I, I think I'd done a TikTok or something a long time ago, about like how, reflecting back on our past experiences and using this like hero, like you're, you're either the hero, the victim, the villain, or the bystander. And I, I was trying to get people to go, but what if you reflected on the same story from four, all four perspectives, you know, how, how are you the hero here? How were you the victim? How were you the villain? Right. How would other people see your actions that you think are heroic? (laughs) And would they be experiencing them as a villain or, or even the bystander thing? And it's like being able somehow to to step away enough to go, but how are my words being heard? Because my goal is to see growth and transformation, to see people change. Anyways, it's a it's really, really difficult because to p- be a person who sheds light on social justice issues in your own community is to offend. You have to offend somebody to do that.
2: <laughs> you are gonna offend people. But you know what? The only way, and I'm learning this, the only way you're not gonna offend people is if you're silent and invisible. So I mean it doesn't matter what you do, you're gonna offend. So you might as well offend on the right side of justice. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. But I think as, as a storyteller, if you can engage, if you can, I don't know, that's what I'm hoping. Cause there's, there's fear. There's a lot of fear. Like I get, I get there's fear with a lot of the bad decisions we make a lot of bad decisions I've made in my own life has been largely rooted out of fear. And so, if you can take the fear away through laughter or through interest or through a feeling of trust or a feeling of connection, I think I hope that hurts. But my goodness, Asterix, I am not a social justice expert, so please read the people who study this and live it and know it.
0: Oh, I think you've taught a lot about social justice things just in the conversation and the way that you that way that you even answered that first question. I sure appreciate it, and I do think that it's something that we have to continue to work on it's a growing thing for us as allies and individuals who, who care about the marginalized. Yeah. Well, I'm, you did send us in a PDF, the books, and <laughs> I, I just got mine this morning. So I'm going to have to have a glance at it and see a little bit, maybe more and uh, see what you've written. Cause I, I definitely, um, I, I not only want to know more about your writing, but I also want to know more about you uh, through this conversation. So I'm grateful for your time and, and, kind of offering up parts of your actual story and some of the stories that you've written that are a little more maybe fiction-based, but are also teaching something important. How can people find your books, find you? How can they learn more about what you're doing and what you're writing about?
2: Yep. So the best way would just be to go to my website. It's lisabush.ca. I'm on Instagram at Lisa Bush and on Facebook, at Lisa Bush writer. I'm on Twitter, but I've kind of stopped using Twitter, but that's at Lisa Bush as well. Um, and then just stay tuned. I'm actually re-releasing, you have the updated version, but I'm re-releasing city hall. I've been working with some incredible editors um, here in Calgary. So that'll be out this fall. And then the district will be out, it's scheduled to be out this winter. So hopefully pretty quickly back to back, you'll have two. Um, two of those. So just, yeah, follow me on social media, um, check out my website and all the information will be there. Yeah. I love it. And get the books
0: and get the books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time. I know that it takes something to Mm -hmm. jump on and do these kinds of things. So we appreciate it. And I hope that you have a good rest of your summer and I'm assuming you're going to keep writing, keep working. (laughs)
2: That's a plan. <laughs> we'll see what the family's plan is. But my yeah. plan is to keep writing and working. I love yeah, it. For sure. Awesome. Absolutely
0: love it. Thank you, Thank you so
2: much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you both, Evan and Tara. Thank yeah, you.
0: You bet. Thank you. Have a good one, Lisa. All okay. right. Bye.
1: Hey, thanks for joining us. If this episode or the podcast has been helpful to you in any way, it would mean so much to us if you would take just 30 seconds to do one or all of these three things. First, follow or subscribe to the Unpacked podcast. This helps you never miss an episode and it goes right to your device. And it helps us so more people can find it too. To do this, head to the show page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Then just look for the follow or the plus sign and click it. It's so important to us and it would mean so much. And hey, while you're there, if you'd be willing to give us a review, preferably five star, and share an episode with a friend that you found helpful, we would be so grateful. We are so, so grateful for this little online community. And if you're looking for more ways to support or exclusive content, you can head to our Patreon account and you can find that in the link in our bio. Again, thanks for listening.